0: Welcome to Speaking Out. We're
1: mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about indigenous uh, constitutional recognition. Those two
0: With Larissa Barrett, It's a fresh view coming. On, on ABC Radio.
1: As a novelist, you would know this, you're so tied to the original story and the original concept, and you know what the characters think and feel, and that's how and you, you expect everybody else to, but they don't because people read differently. We have no control when we put something into the public domain as to how audiences will react. And it's interesting. so I'm sitting there watching the read today and I was thinking, I know black women will laugh their heads off and they will cry in certain places. but equally, I know there'll be a lot of people who won't get the jokes. You know, you just write what you write and you hope
2: that everybody gets something. Titters, the much-loved novel from Anita Heiss set to come to life on stage. And Children Care and Crime, Trauma and Transformation, how an overrepresentation of Indigenous kids in out-of-home care is impacting the criminal justice system. We can look at the...
3: Every step of a child's journey, the the journey in the residential care system, the the journey in the interaction with police, the journey through the provision of legal services, the experience of children in the court system, which is such a fast pace, the inability of magistrates to listen in that process, but also a trauma-informed response approach, which really privileges a
2: strengths-based approach and enables the power of healing in the process as well. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Behrendt. Anita Heiss is one of Australia's most accomplished and prolific First Nations writers, a Wiradjuri woman. She's also an ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation and a strong human rights advocate. Her recent books are Am I Black Enough For You? and Bila Yaradangalangdarae, but an earlier book, Titters, which was released in 2014, is about to come to life on the stage. Anita has become one of our favourite regulars here on Speaking Out. Welcome back, Anita. Thank you for having me. I feel like I should be sponsoring this show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. We love having you. Now, the last time you were here, we were celebrating the updated edition of Am I Black Enough for You? What's the response been? Oh, it's been overwhelmingly positive, Larissa. I think
1: um, it is all about timing for a whole lot of things in our society. We've just seen the change of government and a a real swing towards a support for the Leroux Statement, and I think it is about timing. And um, Am I Black Enough for You, as you know, came out 10 years ago, and I think the readership and the interest in our conversations and conversations that are led by us as First Nations peoples has grown incredibly, particularly in the last few years. So I'm really happy to see that so many, um, not just mob, because it's not of us, not, not enough of us to sustain any publishing venture, but um, non-Indigenous Australians are really taking to the book and reading and thinking and engaging about the themes and and topics that
2: are discussed within it. Your last novel, Biliyara Dangalangdaray, has also been nominated for several more awards after winning the New South Wales Premier's Indigenous Writing Prize, most recently, of course, shortlisted in the Queensland Premier's Literary Awards. Now, obviously, lots of accolades for the book, but what's been the response from the community to it?
1: Oh, do you know, just in the writing process and the research process for that novel, the entire time, my anxiety is, is all around community response because, you know, that's who I write for. I'm a member of, you know, particularly Wiradjuri, my own community, but, you know, the broader Australian First Nations community and an international Indigenous community. And at the end of the day, my concerns and my desires about that book and getting it right really falls at the the hands and the feet of my elders and they are just happy with everything and I have their support they're at every event I do down their own country and so the, you know it's been great it's I again have been completely overwhelmed at how positive that was received and I guess I guess that says more about me and my the lack of trust that I have in
2: myself always anxious about getting it right for for mob We are here to talk about your upcoming adaptation of your other books to uh, to the stage, and that is Titters. Now, your body of work traverses many genres and targets many age groups, but I think it's fair to say you were a pioneer in writing commercial women's fiction from a First Nations perspective. And Titters, which is a story about a group of friends who regularly meet in a book club, falls into this category. Just before we get into the book itself, why was it so important for you that this was a space where you needed to break barriers down?
1: Because I never saw women like myself or you or the Terry Jenkins, or the Robin Quiggins of the world in... Australian literature in the novels that I read. I mean, I read, you know, a lot of most of my friends and um, deadly um, non-Indigenous authors that I admire and respect and love and who were my friends, but I never saw women like us who went to university, who um, have careers, but also an accountability to our community and participate at a grassroots level every day, I never saw women like us portrayed in the Australian literary landscape. And that's really why I started writing back. The first book came out in 2007. And that was a not meeting Mr. Wright, and I think what I learned from that was there were so many women like me who wanted to read about women like myself and my friends and the women that are in my life on a day-to-day basis my aunties my cousins my sisters and so forth Um,
2: and so there was this huge gap and that's why I started in the space. Well, I think you've paved the way for others to more comfortably go into that space. And I love that in your body of work, there's a little bit of something for everyone. You've written children's books. Of course, you've written the highly literary books that win all the literary awards, but you also uh, tell stories that have a really big popular appeal. Now, I gave a little hint of what Titters was about, but Mm -hmm. from your perspective, how do you describe the storyline of the book?
1: It's really about... The it's I like to call it a um, a story of contemporary sisterhood, and and a love letter to Brisbane. So it's five women friends who. Um, grew up in Mudgee. They, they grew up as young teenagers in Mudgee. Three were Age women and two um, non-Indigenous women. And over the course of their 20s, they moved to Brisbane. They have very each one of them has a very different career in life. Um, but they come together, as you mentioned earlier, they come together in a book club, as, as as in many book clubs, particularly women, come together to discuss a book. But it's really also an opportunity to talk about love and life and relationships and careers and children and to find support, particularly during difficult times in life. And so I wanted to, I use the book club as a springboard to, you know, each month there's a different book. Um, we have Mullum Bimbi by Melissa Lukashenko. We have Legacy by Larissa Berendt. We have The Boundary by Nicole Watson and a whole range of other books. And so the, the book is an introduction then to speak about greater issues in our community, in society at large, but also in the women's personal lives, which is what happens, you know, often in book clubs anyway. So I just wanted to, I wanted to talk about how we as women navigate lifelong friendships. You and I've been friends for 35 years. Since Um, we were about two. <laughs> since, <laughs> since we were embryos. Um, and so I think, you know, you look across, you know, a life's journey and we, you know, friends. People we hold close to us, there's unconditional love and friendship. Doesn't mean we always agree on every single political action or item or theme or worldview, but how do we navigate those moments? And how do we display every day a sense of sisterhood and support? And I just wanted to look at that and I wanted to pay tribute to the incredible women in, in my world, while also saying that Brisbane is this incredible city that I think, because I was a southerner and didn't realize, and we don't, I don't think the southern state realised that this city is um, just wonderful in terms of the power and the peacefulness of the river, even with the floods, um, and that Mianjin um, has a cultural precinct that has something for everyone. So I really wanted to do both both of those things,
2: tribute to my friends and sisterhood and also this love letter to Brisbane. Well, of course, you also do another thing that I think is a real hallmark of your style and grace, and that is support other authors by showcasing them in the book club. How did this book of yours uh, come to be adapted to the stage?
1: Well, it's a good question, Larissa, because, you know, I never, ever, ever had any aspirations to write for the stage, um, and I sat down with Nadine McDonald Dowd, who was then an artistic director at QPAC here in Brisbane. And uh, we'd known each other for 20 years since she was previously at uh, Coimbra Jadara. Um, and then she sat down and she said, Anita, you know, we're we going into partnership with La Would you be interested in, in adapting Titters? Because it's a very Brisbane story and they're Brisbane theatres, of course. And I thought, I don't know if I had the capacity to do that, but I'd like to give it a a go. It was quite a challenging process. So we we went into a process of me, you know, learning how to adapt the novel to, to the stage, which I think in many ways is easier than just, trying to start from scratch because pretty much I just had to turn it into dialogue and make that sound easy. It was it was quite challenging. But um, and then I so I had Son, uh, had Sonia Simic, who was a creative producer from La bois and Medine, who was my dramaturg. And then, of course, COVID hit. And we didn't imagine we would get this up till 2045. And so we went through a couple of years of doing a lot of work on Zoom. We did reads with people like Justine Clark and Kylie Bracknell and Shari Sevens, who would Zoom in from there, wherever they were in the country. And um, I'd be in, in the studio over there at La Boite, at Kelvin Grove. And and now we are currently in rehearsals, and to see, have, you know, from the moment I had the conversation with Nadine in November of 2019 until now, it's quite extraordinary. And today I was at the theatre, and I watched another read of, hopefully, the final script of the play, and just watching all the actors, including um, Annie Roxanne McDonald, Roxanne McDonald, um, watching them absolutely live their characters and love their characters and bring it to life is just extraordinary.
2: Has it made you think differently about the book now that you've had to go in and adapt it? You must be re-engaging with it so intimately.
1: It's made me you're right. It's made me now that you've asked and watching it we workshop, you know, the different scenes and characters and watching the actors, watching the actors learn the backstory to the characters has made me think more deeply about each of the characters. And there's five main characters, um, Veronica, Ellen. Oh, what are their names? Oh my God. Veronica, Xanthi, Xanthi, Isabel and Nadine. And it's made me think more deeply about how they feel, how they think, how they act the impact of their actions. Um, just watching the actors, and me just sitting back and listening for a change and just actually absorbing their um their presentation and their performance of the of of the characters and you also what i would learned is you ha- uh, at one point like i had I kept bringing the novel into the workshops for the for the script and i had to learn that it was okay to deviate from the original story, that I could create some new material, that I could, you know, build, you know, more storyline and so forth. So that was difficult because you you, as a novelist you would know this, you're so tied to the original story and the original concept and you know what the characters think and feel and that's how you, you expect everybody else to, but they don't because people read differently. We have no control when we put something into the public domain as to how audiences will react. And it's interesting. So I'm sitting there watching the read today and I was thinking I know black women will laugh their heads off and they will cry in certain places. But equally, I know there'll be a lot of people who won't get the jokes. and But you can't, you, you know, you just write what you write and you hope that everybody gets something.
2: And I was going to ask you what you're hoping that audiences will take from it. And does that differ from what you were hoping they would take from the book?
1: Well, I think a live audience obviously is very different to someone lying in bed or at the beach or on the bath or the train reading a novel. I what I would like, I would I think what I would like audience members to take away is a feeling. I want them to have felt something. I want them to have felt empathy. There's some some dramatic moments that will make people choke up, if not cry. I want them to feel empathy for those moments for those characters. I'd like them to feel the the love and the joy that each of those women have for each other at particular moments as well and I hope that everyone in the audience recognizes in one of the characters themselves and or one of their BFFs one of their own titters I hope they can see some of the characteristics of the women that will be, that share their life. And is it, I mean, there'll be a lot of men in the audience. So there's there are some male characters all played by the one actor, Sean Dow. So I'll be interested to see how men react to this play as well, because it's a very,
2: obviously it's a female story. I know a, quite a few uh, friends from Sydney who are planning to go up to see mm-hmm. the performance in Brisbane. Is there any chance this might travel to other states? We have our fingers crossed.
1: Uh, The Sydney Festival have read the script and verbally have said they love it. So let's fingers crossed for 2024. There is an artistic director coming up to one of the shows um, from Wagga and I've had um, an email from another regional centre. So, you know, I'd love I need to be honest with you. I never expected that Anita Heist would have a play on any stage, let alone at the Brisbane Festival. So anything under the, that's already a big thing. So anything other than that is a bonus. But, you know, of
2: course we want to see it on Broadway, Larissa. I I can't (laughs) imagine why that isn't already happening. Just while we've got you, we've got a couple of other questions for you. Of course, we recently lost our beloved songman, Uncle Archie Roach. And you put the most beautiful words out on Twitter. But what were your reflections on this great storyteller?
1: Oh, just the absolute generosity of spirit, the warmth and the kindness. And I read Uncle Archie's autobiography and I thought this man, this story, it, it, it's a gift and it's so raw and his words on that pay, those pages will, would, would, I believe, will stay with everybody. So if people haven't read it, please read it. will stay with you just like the sound of his voice. I mean... I'm glad she had a voice like no other that we that we could think of that I can think of and I just think it's a monumental loss and yet his legacy will live on with every single time that one of his songs is played and I'll never forget in the 90s you know uh, took the children away had not long been out and I remember every time I heard that song I felt this pang of guilt for being so lucky um, and so fortunate and it was a reminder also I think for black fellas to, that we feel these things that non-Indigenous people will never understand will never imagine is part of anybody else's reality. And I think his gift to the nation is immeasurable in terms of his, his
2: storytelling, whether it's on the page or whether it was in song made me feel quite emotional just listening to you celebrate this wonderful man. We've seen a significant progression of the possibility of a referendum on a voice to parliament under the Albanese government. And what's, from your perspective, the role of the artist or the storyteller at this time in our history?
1: Larissa, I think we just keep doing what we've been doing um, since time immemorial, and that is just continuing to use our art practices whether it's dance or song or um, storytelling in the written form or oral form, that we just keep telling our stories our ways, continuing with our truths and using every platform that we have to ensuring that we are represented everywhere we should be represented.
2: Anita, thank you so much for spending time with us again on Speaking Out. Thank you for having me. Anita Heiss is an author, literacy ambassador and a human rights advocate. And you can find out more about her writing and her work on her website, anitaheiss.com. Titters will be staged at La Boite Theatre in Brisbane from the 5th to the 27th of September. And we have our fingers crossed it makes its way to other states and to Broadway.
0: You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio.
2: This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The importance of Indigenous cultural and heritage protection is an issue which has been given a renewed focus in recent years. Denise Lovett is the chairperson of the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council and she'll join me shortly. But first, I've got a new favourite song. This is King Stingray with Milkomana, which has just picked up Song of the Year at the National Indigenous Music Awards. That's King Stingray, a rock band from north-east Arnhem Land with Milko Mana, and I think you can see why it's my new favourite song.
0: This is Speaking Out, a national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs show produced and presented by Indigenous broadcasters on ABC Radio.
2: One of the great things about my work is that I get to travel around the country and meet interesting and inspiring people. And on a recent trip to Gunditjmara country, I had the privilege of meeting Denise Lovett, Chairperson of the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council. Denise Lovett is also a key force in the protection of cultural heritage on her own country. I learnt so much from Denise when we met on the site of the old Lake Condomission, and I wanted the chance for you to meet her too. Denise Welcome to Speaking Out. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Larissa. Now, first, before we get into the history of the place that um, I met you on, Lake Condomission, I wonder if you could uh, share with us where you grew up and what shaped your values and worldview. I uh, grew up in
4: Haywood, went to school in Haywood, My kids went to school, all born on country, went to school. My mum still lives there. All her siblings lived there, my grandmother, cousins. So he was only just a small town, but um, there was the biggest mob there. We were 10% of the population, actually.
2: Now, um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the history of Lake Condomission and it's got an extraordinary um, history.
4: Yeah, very much the same as all other, you know, the establishment of um, the missions that happened right across Australia. I, I think our, um, our fight started when um, Portland, which is about half an hour from Haywood, is where the first um, first invasion of our country comes through Victoria. Um, so there was a big uh, and long battle there. Um, Kundij Mara fought a guerrilla war for 25 years down here, um, trying to defend their country and, and disrupt the the. Settlers and squatters that were coming through, and then in the end, you know, that, that resistance was broken by the um, native police, and the mission reserves were set up, and then they turned into missions, and people were then put on to the missions. But at the highest number of Aboriginal people on the mission, including Gundish Mara people and, and people brought in from other nations, was, was only a hundred. It went operated for about a 100 years
2: i don 't think many people appreciate the significance of Portland as that first place, nor how long and protracted that frontier war was it 's a very important part of the history leading up to the to the establishment of the missions, especially around
4: um, uh, yeah especially uh, for us down in Victoria as, you know there was they come up the convicts come up through through Sydney, but yeah down here in Victoria, Portland was the port port. Of, Point of entry, and um, when you look at the um, massacre mapping that they're that they're doing, the first um, lot of massacres were, were held on Gundishma, were carried out on Gunditjmara country, and that's the ones where they have have the information on. So it was a big, uh, a long battle, but we we paid heavily for it. Gunditjmara people from, with a uh, big nation of fifty nine clans right across our country, and. By the time, you know, the the missions are operating and operated for that amount of time, there's only about 100 people on there and they weren't all Gunditjmara people. And then when we come to do our native title, 14
2: 14, um, agricultural ancestors that have descendants.
4: So, yeah, big losses,
2: big losses. What was life like on Lake Conda mission?
4: When the mission was going and it was all about control, they sort of had to come there because outside the missions, it was really unsafe for them. You know, they were getting killed, and um, no one was caring for them. So, being on the mission, at least they were with their their, their own their own kind. But yeah, it was still about being controlled, and you you changed from being a a cultural person to being a Christian Christian person, and that was all. Um, Imposed. It was wasn't. No choice was about it. It was imposed. If you didn't go to the church or you weren't doing the Christian things, and you, your rations would be stopped, or you'd be put off the mission.
2: Given that history, why has it been so important for the community to preserve the site and keep it as a, a you know to keep it um, as somewhere that people can visit?
4: First, because it's the turning point in our. In our story, in our um, story from Aboriginal Australia and, and how we lived and how our society was to um, being put on there, uh, who was left on there and everything they they knew and understood about their country and, and their culture was stopped at that place. And then when you move down to um, the mission operating and then closing down and then it being um, it was all divided up and handed out a soldier settlement for the returned soldiers, though none of the Aboriginal soldiers that were on Lake Honda mission that spent time on Lake Conda mission were entitled to it because they were part Aboriginal. so when they closed the mission, Kundishmara people still accessed the mission and still lived on the mission, and it was there um, and that was in the time of my elders my elders' childhood, so that was their their playground. So they have fond and happy memories of growing up there together.
2: It struck me that that was another part of a very important history that often gets overlooked the, the role that um, Aboriginal people played in protecting the country by participating in wars. Second World War uh, was the one we were talking about where soldiers came back. There was a soldier settlement scheme also. And as you mentioned, that wasn't available for Aboriginal men. And the consequence was that these parcels of land that have been home to people for generations were, were sold. When you think of that history, and now there you are, not just looking after this site and protecting it. So these stories keep being told. There's also another wonderful aspect that's very inspiring about the work that you're doing. Can you tell us a little bit about what's so important about the keeping place that's now on that site? Yes, um, for
4: years we'd go to the museums and look at our objects, our cultural materials. Our we have an old um, possum skin cloak that was made back in the early mission days, and, and baskets that were woven by by um, by women to catch the eels in and um, they were all held in the museum and we could never, we kept asking for them to be returned but they said, no, you don't have the proper facilities and it was during our um, native title negotiations we said we would like our business centre but more importantly we would like a keeping place and we would like that keeping place to have the um, exact uh, requirements or features that a um, museums have to hold um, materially so our um keeping place can hold old um materials of, of made of wood fiber and and fiber and fur yeah so those materials have been returned to us and we hold them on our country on their country i
2: was going to ask you about that because i think for some people they might not understand why it's so important that these objects are back in the place that they came from and why repatriation to country is so important it is
4: it's first it's the um the story of them being being made and what what they turned into and what they were used for and who made them and why the designs are on them and who's who's put those designs and do we know what they mean we we um, we have the objects a lot of the story that was connected to them didn't come with them because they weren't passed on when they took the objects from from the persons so i don't I, I believe the objects that most museums and um, institutes hold are stolen objects and stolen material, and, that why, and that's why it doesn't have who actually made that and why they made it and what's that story that goes with that design.
2: With some of the history you've just been talking to us about, it's very easy to think of this as a very sad story. And, of course, there is a very tragic history here. But when I met you, I was actually really overcome with um, a sense of triumph. It seems that one of the things that's been quite incredible about what's been achieved on your country is not just that you're part of the world's oldest living culture and been here for 60,000 years, but the community has been all through that, and yet, what you have there is a co- is a community that is um, getting its uh, materials back through the repatriation. Um, I had a chance to sit with some master weavers down there who are doing their cultural practice. There's a whole range of ways in which the community is now continuing to look after country. In that, oh yes, it's it's a really positive story. Oh yes, yes.
4: From um, I mean, I said it one end of kind of Mission and I look at what we do and, and what we can achieve and the capacity that we've grown into and I look down onto the old mission site and think, you know, if, if things were just different for them, the outcome would have been different. But we're so fortunate that there is a um, good story in the end, but yeah, we paid heavily for it.
2: You sure did. But, of course, one of the things that the community there has been involved in is obviously a ranger program, which is helping to look after country and to re-engage and protect really important cultural practices like the eel farming that was there. What's been the importance of having community come back and care for country?
4: Oh, country needs people, you know. Country needs people. It needs all of us to be here. Doing what makes us feel important, doing that's what doing stuff that's important to us. It's the thing, and it's and 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 it's the doing and, and doing of this that helps us get through the past traumas and and see see that yeah, there is a there is a way out, and it is, you know, having the opportunity to to work on country and care for country to to come to a workplace. Um and be involved in cultural practices, strong in our de- identity.
2: I had the privilege of briefly meeting your very beautiful granddaughter while I was uh, there to meet you. With all the work that you're doing, obviously you must be looking to the future in some ways. What's your hope for her and her generation?
4: Uh, what, what do I... Don't be hoping for the young people because, gee, um, <laughs> they... um. To see where we are and to see them come through, my my grandchildren and my children have grown up with a lot that I didn't grow up with. So they've been very really fortunate, and I think that's going to show in um, in in the opportunities that come before them in in education, but also in um, their careers, um, their sporting, their art and craft. You know, they're, they're, it's it's just there in front of them. There's um, racism still an issue and we still have a lot to do there. We don't have a lot to do. We don't have to address the racism because we're the victims of racism.
2: The um, Victorian government has going through a treaty and now a truth-telling process. I was struck when I was meeting with you uh, on your country and also talking to you now, how many parts of the history of that country are so important and not enough people know them. From your perspective, what do you hope can be achieved by people hearing these stories of country? And not just the bad stories but the good stories too. People don't know
4: and and when when they come and they see the mission and we tell them what, the, what happened on the mission, how long the mission was gone for, them, oh, gee, we didn't know that. They don't even comprehend the... the um, they know Aboriginal people. They know Aboriginal people were here, but that's all they know. They don't know what happened to the Aboriginal people. They don't know um, the perception of Aboriginal people um, from 200 years ago until now is, is yeah, it's a really hit and miss. A lot's been missed out. A lot, lot's been missed out through the education system. Yeah, just telling people the way it is and what's happened is that's the truth telling.
2: Well, Denise, I so enjoyed my time on your country. And despite the, the leeches that, I, that found me <laughs> yes, so tasty, there, yes. I really yes. look forward to coming back because it's such a beautiful part of the world. So thank you so much for coming uh, and spending some time with us on Speaking Out so the rest of the country can hear a little bit about the extraordinarily important history and the wonderful work being done on your Gunditjmara country.
4: Thank you for the invitation and thank you for all the opportunities that you provide for all of us. Larissa, your work is great too.
2: Denise Lovett is the Chairperson of the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council and Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Officer at Meering.
0: Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge,
4: the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people.
0: On
2: ABC Radio.
0: It was hard for me I would never speak up out of turn About those blonde, blue-eyed girls They were beautiful But it was hard Hard for me to dream Be the boss of this Mm -hmm. town I am a woman now, I feel beautiful and I love myself, but it was hard to get you.
2: Issues we like to draw your attention to here on Speaking Out are the over-representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in the child protection system and the over-representation of Indigenous people in the criminal justice system, particularly women and juveniles. A new book aimed at practitioners and policy makers looks at these issues. Children, Care and Crime, Trauma and Transformation is a forthcoming release from Routledge and co-authored by Alison Gerard, Andrew McGrath, Emma Colvin and Annette Gainsford. Associate Professor Annette Gainsford joins me now. She is the Associate Dean, Indigenous Teaching and Learning at the Office of the Pro Vice-Chancellor, Indigenous Leadership and Engagement at UTS. Annette, welcome to Speaking Out.
3: Yeah, thank you, Larissa. Thank you for having me.
2: Now, just before we get into the book, I just they thought maybe you could share with us a little bit about where you grew up and where you get your values from.
3: Yeah, so I am a Wiradjuri woman. I am from Bathurst, New South Wales. I have uh, ancestral links to, to Wellington. My my nan grew up in Wellington, New South Wales, and I definitely get my values from through my family, through my ancestral links, and through my grandmother's knowledge that was passed down to me as the oldest granddaughter, but also I've been living and working on country now, um, since I was born. And, um, I've, I've been able to, to sit and listen to those stories through my grandmother and through other people in the community that that have really shaped my values. And I think that it's really important. Um, I have a, a very good sense of connection to country and, um, the the ways in which um, country has shaped me and and my unique connection.
2: Well, the book we're here to talk about is, of course, uh, a part of this very important work that you're doing. Um, Children Care and Crime Trauma and Transformation looks at the experience of children in the out-of-home care system and in the criminal justice system. What research did you undertake for the book?
3: Yeah, so we looked at a range. It was a multimodal range of research. So we looked at um, ways in which that we could um, gather research from um, court observations and file reviews, um, qualitative interviews, but we also were able to to access people um, working as justice practitioners, magistrates and police to gather the evidence um, for the research for the book. My area of um, expertise, there was um, four four people, four authors in the book. We had a, a lawyer, um, Alison Gerard. We had um, Andrew McGrath, who is a psychologist. We had Emma Colvin, who's a criminologist, and myself from an Indigenous education background and Indigenous curriculum perspective background. So one thing that we wanted to do is we wanted to, embed the indigenous perspectives across the book, we didn't want to have the indigenous content in a chapter as a sense of other. We wanted to privilege indigenous voice and in, provide a platform in each chapter for the indigenous component and the, the intersection between the indigenous component and, and the chapter content.
2: What were some of the key findings in particularly in relation to the links between colonisation and criminalisation?
3: Yeah, so some of the links between colonization were that, you know, we don't really, we, we still have, um, colonial areas that influence the criminal justice system. We have areas, um, around, you know, changing of attitudes and practices by police. We need to look at to reduce the interaction with children. We have, you know, the re-traumatisation and the intergenerational traumas um, of children. But we also, um, areas of criminalization and colonisation and how we're still in that deficit-based narrative. We have policies and ways in which that policies aren't held accountable um, when when um, we're, we're talking about criminalisation of children, but also just the um, the ability for Indigenous communities to advocate for their children and autonomy to assert their sovereign rights. So so those areas were, were definitely. Um, areas that we looked at um, ways in which culture comp- contributes to the success and success and strength, and you know linking um, children's success and strength to to culture and how it needs to be normalised, not neglected within the criminal within the the out of home care system
2: and also um, in the criminal justice system. One of the really interesting aspects about the book is your critique of the hope trope. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and why it's so dangerous?
3: Yeah, so it's really dangerous because we know that um, hope's tropes looks at um, ways in which, like, we're doing really great things. We've got all these policies. We've got all these practices and processes. But really, is that is that what's um, happening? So we're looking at... Um, ways in which we were able to look at the research is what is um, in the criminal justice system and the ways in which the policies and the strategies are happening. It looks good on paper, but is it really happening? Is it really accountable? Is it really including things like Indigenous voice and community ways in which that is interacting with the the system as well?
2: There are, of course, some major critiques of the system almost at every step of the way in the book, but you also offer an alternative. What are the transformative approaches that we should be looking at instead?
3: Yeah, so we're looking at strengths-based approaches. So if we even look at, say, the Royal Commission into the um, Detention and Protection of Children in the Northern Territory, you know... Indigenous cultures often looked at a deficit-based rather than a strengths-based approach. A process in which we can look at the every step of a child's journey, the 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 journey in the residential care system, the the journey in the interaction with police, the journey through the provision of legal services, the experience of children in the court system, which is such a fast pace, the inability of the inability of magistrates to listen in that process, but also a trauma informed response approach, which really privileges a strengths approach and enables the power of healing in the
2: process as well. Now, um, you mentioned earlier that you've had, had your PhD conferred. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what led you to undertake your postgraduate studies and tell us a bit about the research you did in that area
3: the book encapsulates one area of my research and I definitely have a passion and a personal interest in home care system and I do have another passion which is education and um, my PhD research is in the um, embedding of Indigenous knowledges into higher education and I did international case studies in legal education. So um, I was working at Charles Sturt University at the time where um, I was the one of the, the Lead Indigenous academics on the first Australian law degree to include um, Indigenous cultural competency across core, core legal content. And that led me to um, looking at a range of um, legal education areas and legal education internationally where Indigenous content and Indigenous knowledges were embedded. And um, I particularly looked at the the Charles Sturt University case study and, and what we were doing at Charles Sturt University. But I knew that the Charles Sturt University law degree had ample international contextualisation for other people to learn from, but I knew that there were other law degrees out there doing similar. And um, I I researched a number of other areas and I then had contacts with the University of Victoria in British British Columbia in Canada and they have a a joint law degree in um, Indigenous um, law and um, common law and I was able to work with um, people like Val Napoleon, um, John Burrows, Jeremy Weber, Rebecca Johnson on ways in which they, in Canada, were implementing and embedding First Nations um, knowledges into law curriculum as well. So the PhD included... um, qualitative interviews with um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous law academics, um, focus groups with Indigenous curriculum stakeholders, so um, people from community, um, Indigenous and First Nations peoples from community who have um, a a stakeholder component in developing curriculum for law degrees um, in higher education. And also, I wanted to capture the student voice because I think that that was really important to look at the impact of embedding Indigenous knowledges into a law curriculum and how Indigenous voice um, was being um, looked at and how Indigenous knowledges were being looked at by our students and looking at their student experience. So um, I did focus groups with with law students, Indigenous and non-Indigenous.
2: Well, you're such a passionate advocate for Indigenous education and for education generally. If there are people there listening, thinking maybe I should do a PhD, what would your advice be to them?
3: Yes, and people often ask me about this and I think that, you know, I always talk about the stars aligning and um, it it definitely did with my honours research as well. Um, So um, I I came across a wonderful um, um, Koori woman, um, Michelle Evans, who who really introduced me to the world of research and um, was my honours supervisor and then obviously went on to do a PhD. And, um, you know, I had wonderful expertise um, with supervisors. But I think my main um, um, advice would be Yes, definitely the stars aligned for me, um, but it was an area that I was really passionate about. So there is a really common um, theme that runs through my research practice, and and, and it is education, Indigenous education. And um, whether that's um, me being a teacher, so obviously I came from an education background, working as an Aboriginal education worker in schools, working in welfare positions in community, working as a teacher, and then coming in. Into higher education and focusing on Indigenous education in the higher education sector. But um, my PhD has opened a world of opportunity for me, and um, I, I'm really thankful that I had the support of wonderful colleagues and my family. But I would say my advice would be to, to pick an area that you're passionate about and it's really about determination. It's about strength and determination and really believing in what you're writing about and what you're researching. And it definitely gets you through, but there's a lot of resilience involved in writing a PhD. Um, A wise colleague said to me, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And that's definitely it. Um, And the other Um, advice I give is I worked on my PhD every single day, even if it was just organizing my research um, for the next day. But for four years, I basically worked on my PhD for every single day. And it's just in, in increments and little bit by little bit to be successful.
2: Well, Lynette, congratulations on the book and thank you so much for stopping by, speaking out and sharing with us your important work and your inspiring education story.
3: Yeah, thank you very much for having me and um, it's a pleasure to to share my work and um, to share the, the research with
2: everybody, so thank you. Associate Professor Annette Gainsford is the Associate Dean Indigenous Teaching and Learning at UTS. She is one of the authors of Children, Care and Crime, Trauma and Transformation, published by Routledge. Mm-hmm. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we bring you more stories from Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berent.